Today in the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, we have your listener-driven week in sports cars episode. Powered, we usually put his name at the end, but we're going to start off saying it is powered by my British brother, Graham Goodwin. He, the editor of DailySportsCar.com, a man who speaks into microphones and television cameras and apparently he's dinging on us as well uh, throughout a variety of championships, be it world endurance, be it Asian, be it European. This is a fine man who knows himself some sporty cars. How are you this fine Saturday night in the UK? Yeah, beautiful day here in the UK. Um, We've had a few days of rain, back to sunshine. Uh, Husky has now been walked, uh, waiting for dinner this evening and uh, looking forward to a good old chat with yet again a remarkable list of questions from our regular listeners and including yet again new names, Marshall, it goes from strength to strength. It does, indeed it does. Speaking of strength, this show is made possible by the strong support from you all, our listeners, our fine, fine partners. At Cooper Tires, we love ourselves some Cooper Tires. The Justice Brothers, Graham, I would say, boy, we are squeak-free and we are lubricated and highly efficient (laughs) due to the various (laughs) products made by the Justice Brothers, their automotive aftermarket line of chemicals, lubricants, fluids, just you name it. Also, TorontoMotorsports.com. They let us have fun. They make T-shirts, they make stickers, they do all kinds of things that just really, they speak. They speak our language. And finally, Bell Racing Helmets USA. We love ourselves some Bell Racing Helmets USA. And you know, of of all four of our only but our primary partners, Graham, all of them got their start with us back in 2018 except for the justice brothers got their start with us in 2019 but as i've mentioned many times my relationship with ed justice and the justice family dates back to the late 90s so wow boy we are steeped in fine folks who look after us you know just before we get going and i have not mentioned this to anyone other than a just a handful of friends this has been a pretty been a crazy week uh most of every week seems to be crazier than the last with things happening on a global level uh here in the united states more folks uh meeting the end of their lives through improper means more protests more acrimony uh some positivity as well some very positive things happening we've learned about some teams that have shut down temporarily, dropped entries. We learned on Friday, Alex Zanardi is now in a very bad way after an accident on the road. Been going through some hard times, and we try and make this show fun and light and a bit of a reprieve from life. But at the same time, we also try and be real and honest with you in knowing that we are two folks right in the middle of life. And so it would be hard for such things to happen, positive, negative, or otherwise, and for those to be magically scrubbed away and pretend as if 
Graham and I are not somehow affected by these things. And I just wanted to share one thing that just blew my mind in the midst of a really extraordinarily uh, tough week. Emotional roller coaster is a underserving description. About three weeks ago, Graham, um, dear Mrs. Julia Wilson, um, wife of the late Justin Wilson, who was, as I've mentioned, he he was one of my best friends. Uh, She'd reached out. I think I was sitting out in front of my wife's physical therapy session and um, just got a text from her saying, hey, I know you guys moved. What's your new address? So I just sent it to her and just thinking, oh, she's, you know, being very good and organized, Graham, at getting her Christmas card list, you know, updated and make sure all the addresses are correct and such. Get a note that there's a, a delivery and that showed up, I think, again, Thursday or Friday. My brain's a little bit scrambled. But just wanted to share that in and among a week that seemed like it's been harder than most, topped off with Alex Zanardi's crash as well. Happened to get this box uh, from Julia and open it. It's one of Justin's 2006 Champ Car helmets. <laughs> and I'm staring at it right now, mate. And... <sighs> I I just I don't even know how to put it into words, in in adult words, uh, it, it's it's jarring, and yeah. and that's maybe again I'm not good at good word choosing with my face and brain right now, but it's just one of those things where I'm looking at it and there's no more defining or identifiable piece for a driver than their helmet, and to be staring at Justin's helmet two feet away from me right now is just it's it's overwhelming really overwhelming yeah. and uh she sent the most incredible letter um to my wife and i and obviously we've done a lot to try and take care of them after justin's passing um and thanks to many of you listening you've helped raise funds for them and just this beautiful letter sent to my wife and i signed by uh julia and her daughters jane and jess and it's just one of those things, mate, where you know, I I'm, I'm, was truly struggling to deal with emotions all over the place and a lot of things going on, even stuff that I won't go into just in our personal lives. And just to have something like this arrive uh, and just turn everything upside down and, and make me realize that even when things, good Lord, I think I'm one of the stronger folks when it comes to the mind and emotions and whatnot. But I'm not, and it's just amazing, brother, to have something, a gift like this, um, her wanting to share, you know, a piece of her husband with me um, after an hour, you know, coming up on the five-year anniversary in August. It's just, it's staggering, and it just, just reminded me of, boy, even when things get really dark, there are surprises and unexpected things that often happen that remind you that, oh, uh, whatever it is, it's kicking the, pardon my English, kicking the living shit out of you. Um, often there's a reprieve, and often it can come in unexpected ways at unexpected times. So I'm still not worthy. Yeah. I still don't know what to do here. Like, there's part of me that's like, I need to send this back. Um, but I just wanted to share that because 
in and among all the things that have gone on over the last week and recent weeks, something like this just reminds me of how amazing people can be when it seems like so much of what we read uh, today involves how folks are not being particularly incredible to one another or misfortune is befalling folks or things are shutting down or being cut and whatnot and just humanity will prevail humanity will prevail you know we just have to let it we just have to defer to the good stuff Uh, there are some bad times ahead there's no doubt about that so some very bad times ahead and it's going to be a struggle for a lot of people you know in our 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 professional lives mp i've no doubt that we'll be in amongst that that group that will have our struggles moving forward but this is the time to be kind this right now is the time to be kind. This is the time to check in with the people around you and make sure they're okay. Uh, that's a that's a brilliant story. That's an absolutely a story. And I can hear the emotion in your voice. Um, Try not to you know, cry and then, be a bubble, oh, more but, of a bubbling idiot here. But it's just oh. like, what do you do? I mean, you know, I, I I did I just responded to Julie like, are you insane? You don't just pull that on someone, lady. Are you crazy? You know, come on. I mean, again, all said with love, but it's just so I know this is just an extraordinary gesture. And I would hope for any of our listeners who we I readily refer to as family. I don't know what that gift might be, but if you are struggling, man, uh, the surprises that can come, um, they're worth believing in and holding on to, even if you aren't exactly sure how you're going to get through the other side. So. Thank you, Mrs. Wilson. As I hear Rocky crying, complained for the first time during the episode, wanting to be fed almost two hours before he's scheduled to. All right. We have spoken about cats, racing helmets, and I don't know what else. What do you think, Graham? Should we start talking about sports cars? I think we should. And I think this week, in a break from recent tradition, having been nearly told off last week, we're going to start with Weck Aslam's Elms Echo. Wow. Well, I like the bold, bold uh, decision that you have made here. I like Mm. the fact that we are not going with IMSA for the first time in a little while. And should we tip our hand and say that we kind of sort of have a DTM uh, category for the first time (laughs) as well? I mean, hey. Well, it's it's just it's – what can you say? Uh, we'll, we'll come to that. But yes, there have been a number of DTM questions because of a story that's been doing the rounds uh, over the last week or so about the um, options for the DTM to drag its sorry ass out of the um, muddy pit it's driven itself into. Uh, but we'll we'll see that one a little later. But uh, I think we're going to start. We're going to with- start with Doogie Davies. All right. So. <laughs> Third time in a row, Doogie has sent this in and should mention here, we don't always get your questions. If you really want them answered, please send them in. The more abusive you get with the the reminders on the second and third time, the more apt I am to read them. You might be surprised, but the greater the hostility and just the little knives, little poking at me in particular, uh, I love that. So, Doogie. By the, by the way, should say, should say by the way, Doogie, those allegations against Marshall were never proven in court. So that 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 was just going to draw draw a veil over that one, Marshall. Well, I'm uh, 
I'm all over it. I'm all over it. Uh, let's go to this beautiful question. Believe this will go in the general, but hey, want to get your thoughts. Says so something you mentioned a few shows ago. At one point, you mentioned that at a gr- uh, at a great cost cutting technique uh, might be to allow engines from different cars to be used across different series. Mentions with uh, IMSA's LMDH allowing GT3 engines to be used. Could that be a way forward for multiple series? Curious, talking about Porsche building one engine that it might be able to use, say, in wex hypercar maybe then throw it into lmdh gt3 indycar who knows would love to get some thoughts here and this is a good show opener uh doogie Mm. talking about something that it fits in the mindset graham of convergence right hey how do we bring dissimilar things together in a common way do you think there could be something of value here in trying to create, align something across, you know, WEC, ELMS, Asian Le Mans series, and the variety of other championships that Doogie mentioned, where a manufacturer might really only need to do one power plant um, that could be used in multiple places. Um, well, let's kick it off. It, not the first time we've talked about um, a global engine. Remember that back in the day? the uh, That was a turbocharged four-pot, wasn't it, some it while was. ago? The GRE, of, Global Racing indeed. Engine. Indeed. Um, and from memory, that was that an Ulrich Beretsky idea? Uh, am I, am I he was, yes, he was one of the fathers of that, but always yeah. hesitated from taking full claim. There you go. But I mean, I think the the answer from from me on this one is right now is absolutely the time to be addressing anything that can preserve, uh, you know, a level of international competition that's worth having we we have we i don't know we know some things that we can't write yet um i don't know exactly what we're going to hear in the coming weeks and months but my guess would be that on balance it's going to be more bad than good therefore if you can find a way through regulation to ensure that people have got the opportunity to utilize components major components they've already got that they don't have to develop from scratch that for my money has got to be a very good thing uh, would gt3 engines be amongst those well you'd have to say that would be a pretty smart move they're very powerful um they are very reliable uh, they generally tend to be uh, based very heavily on the production car uh, that the race cars come from. Therefore, some of the development sits on the shoulders of the road car business. Yes, why not? I see no reason at all. Why not? Uh, the key has always been how much freedom the uh, manufacturers, the tuners actually get uh, to produce the ponies that are required for the regulations. And there's been a bit of playing about with that. We've had uh, just yesterday the uh, FIA's World Motorsport Council approving the, reg- the changes to regulations, which slightly dumbed down the uh, the, hyper- the Le Mans hypercars for next year, uh, bring the power down, bring the weight down, which uh, has the effect of actually making convergence possible and therefore easier. Um, and no reason at all why you shouldn't see an engine sitting in the back of one of those cars that also does service in the back of an LMDH or indeed in the front or the back or the middle, for that matter, of a GT3 car. Yes, a good thing. Um, We're going to have to get used to the clarion call, particularly, I think, from the big 
manufacturing groups, they need to save money. And that's going to have effects on a whole range of things. Marshall, you've talked about this in terms of where we might see the future IMSA calendar going. I'm hearing from WEC teams that they're putting pressure on LMEM, who organised WEC, to reduce the number of WEC rounds from next year onwards to make that more affordable. We've seen a number of solutions being offered from a number of championships for condensed calendars to finish this year and into next year. Uh, And I think we can expect to see more of that coming forward with one thing and one thing only on their minds, and that is cost-cutting. Cost-cutting, in this instance, for some teams, for some manufacturers, you you can substitute one word for those two, and that word is survival. Mm. And the point you raised there, Graham, is a perfect one in that... What has been the norm in sports car racing almost exclusively? We might see it in a a few other championships, but what has been the norm over many decades when we have gone through the regional or global economic booming and busting? We have seen the calendar for most series adjust and evolve with the financial times with the health of the manufacturers. So IMSA, hey, you've got, what, 10 rounds for your DPIs slash LMDHs. We don't want to give up any of those 10. And again, GTLM and this and that. We want to have all the racing all the time. (laughs) That's our goal. But if the economy does not support that, as we have seen, those 10 races turn into eight or seven or whatever it might be, or we do the double header routine. I think that might be something we see more of just kind of fitting in this. Hey, if you can build one engine and apply it in multiple places, well, that's significant economic scale that can be saved. Same thing here. Hey, if we're going to tell our teams to go to Portimao for whatever, you know, whether it's WEC, ELMS, etc., if we're going to tell you to go here and race, well, that costs money, put people on airplanes, book hotels, pay for this, pay for that. What if instead of doing 10 hours on a Sunday, what if we do four hours on a Saturday and then six on a Sunday? We've got two rounds in. We have only asked people to travel once. I realize that you're still putting mileage on vehicles and whatnot, and you're consuming things on the car that you're going to have to replace that are going to cost money. But again, it's just a mindset, and I like where Doogie is headed here. Certainly not the first time we've discussed it on the show or the last, but if we're being honest about where this coronavirus is, has already led us and where we're at with a global recession in motion, yeah, the sport we love and the championships within that sports car world that we love, start looking for economies of scale. Start looking for, hey, sure, we could come play with your IMSA LMDH, make sure that motor can be used if we want to go use it in Europe or vice versa. I just think that's going to, it's going to need to become, Graham, uh, more of a, a standard approach to what we do. Let's uh, yep. let's go to, speaking of costs, let's go to our man Joseph Ooh. Kang. Hey, Joseph. Ooh. says, with the financial problems that teams in the WC, Graham, are likely to face due to the current economic climate, is there a possibility that more teams will choose to do a season in ELMS instead of WEC? 
or just ELMS teams for that pre uh, for teams that previously ran both series. Maybe cut out the WEC part and just stay in ELMS. Uh, I'm presuming this means for 2021. I think what we're going to see across the board in just about every series is there are going to be casualties. So, you know, brace yourselves. We are going to see some cars and some teams and some drivers that were on the list that won't be on the list. That means for WEC, it means for LMS, it means for everywhere. There is one particular series, and I'm not going to name which one it is because that keeps up the fun for the people that uh, listen to Twisk and uh, then go off and, say, uh, and write that news. I uh, understand there's at least one fairly significant series uh, in Europe, that at the moment is sitting looking at a more than 50% dropout rate um, for the uh, already declared 2020 entries. So 2020, we're going to see some dropouts. I think we're going to see a bit of a recast as well. I think we will see some teams that uh, are in for Continental Series that will do National Series, for instance. Uh, rather oddly, I think with WEC... Um, we're going to see one uh, slightly different knock-on effect, and that comes from the shape of the calendar. So I do expect we're going to see some dropouts from ELMS, for instance, but I equally well expect that Spa in particular will see additional cars because some of the WEC teams will want to get some practice uh, in race conditions, and the ELMS is there the week before WEC is. So my guess is we're going to see uh, a handful at least of teams putting in cars uh, for the previous weekend's action. For next year, uh, all bets are off. It's going to come down to what do the calendars look like? What does that not mean that there's a knock-on effect on budgets? Um, and what does that mean in terms of the willingness and of, uh, of people to pay and the affordability of those programs? There is zero doubt in my mind, MP, and I'm sure you're hearing the same stateside, uh, that there is significant pressure being put on race and championship organisers by the teams to reduce cost. Um, that is going to be an absolute imperative. The, the easiest way to do that is to reduce the number of races, of course. Uh, so we wait and see whether or not that comes to pass. Will the scenario you're describing uh, come into play? Well, it won't impress LMEM if that's what starts to happen. But then again, the ball is now in their court. They will know that there's pressure uh, on their customers. Uh, we've got the new hypercars coming. We've heard from Jim Glickenhaus as to what his plans are. We've heard from Toyota about what their plans are. We believe we know what's going to happen with Bicolis. We don't know yet about any grandfathered uh, P1 effort coming back in. Uh, LMP2 is where you start to get into some of the trickiness. Um, that's where the kind of budgets you're talking about, three to four million um, uh, euro for a single car, uh, in the last couple of years, that's going to need to come down without a shadow of a doubt. Um, <sighs> there's an interesting moment right now. The response of the, uh, well, hashtag powers that be is going to be very, very interesting. If you're interested in the figures that apply here, watch Daily Sports Car from Monday. Ooh, look at that. We're, uh, we're baiting the hook for DSC. I love it. Let's go to SRA Smoking Puppy 841. It's probably impossible now, Graham. But with hindsight, would it have made more sense to reintroduce the performance caps for LMP1 Hybrid? Hashtag me personally, the official hashtag of our show. 
It would have ensured at least some cars were on equal footing. And then LMDH entries could either meet those limits or be BOP'd around them. I think the answer is it's a bit late. I mean, the reality is we've already been told. Um, as for the hybrid cars, no, none of those are going to run in grandfathered form after this year. Toto made that very clear. The way things have actually turned out out of this crisis, what we have found is that it gives uh, Toyota a bit more breathing room and to be able to start the season with a little more comfort with what's clearly a delayed program for everybody because of the difficulties in getting design, uh, development, testing, and for that matter, components uh, together for what is going to be a brand new class of cars. I think we're kind of, it's sort of after the horse has bolted that for, for me, the, the key to it is, is there any willingness from any of the LMP1 uh, teams or teams that have got those cars available to bring them back in grandfathered form for another year? Uh, you know, the one we, we're, I guess we're looking at is whether or not Team LNT and the Genettas might return. <sighs> I think there's a call going to be made about exactly where that program goes pretty darn quickly. Oh, more intrigue to follow here. Let's go to Michael Bridget says 24 hours of Le Mans. This is with the changing of the timetable. There's only one free practice in the dark, Graham. Do all drivers yep. still have to complete a mandatory number of laps in the dark? And how many are there? Also mentions free practices from 8 p.m. to midnight. Do all laps in this training uh, session count for the mandatory laps? Are they only the laps in the dark that count? And for what time is the, is it dark enough that they count and how much time is left to do the laps? So you're expected to know a lot of things here off the top of your head. Right. Bob Michael. Um, right. For starters, now I have to go back and check, but I know the number of laps went up and I've got a feeling it's, it's five flying laps. I'll double check that and come back to that one later in the show. Um, but the answer is you're completely correct with this condensed program for the Le Mans 24 hours in September. That, by the way, indicates that they do plan to go ahead with or without fans. Uh, my view on what their intention is going to be. Uh, and there was an announcement yesterday evening by uh, the French government that uh, they are lifting some of the restrictions uh, on mass gatherings, but they're still putting a cap of 5,000 people at uh, various forms of events. Um there is indeed only going to be one night practice session. Uh, the one we're talking about is Thursday night from eight till midnight. So four hours from memory at that time of year, uh, sunset is just before eight o'clock. So you're quite right. I mean, my guess is that whole session will count. Uh, I think that's the only way you could really do it unless they're going to say from eight thirty. Uh, but it will be by about eight thirty. It will be more or less full dark. Uh, my guess is the teams are going to have to be darn careful, but they're going to have to be darn careful the whole weekend uh, because there's precious little time to recover from a car-damaging uh, incident. Uh, I don't believe they will make any changes whatsoever to the regulations to accommodate that. And I think if they did, the closest you're going to get to it is that there might be a case of force majeure and they would only, I guess, apply that to drivers that have already raced on this circuit in recent years in darkness. So if you're a first-timer at Le Mans, I think I'd be being very, very careful at about 8.30 p.m. on the Thursday night. Mm. 
Have you heard, Graham, anything regarding increased Paris simulator time and hours and whatnot for rookies and refreshers and such? Because that's the only other area I could think of where if we're throttling down the amount of on-track time compared to a non-coronavirus year, uh, that might be one area where they could call for an increased uh, number of or amount of effort. Yeah, explain what that is. I mean, Marshall's absolutely right. If you're a rookie for the race, and that means if you've not done it for a set number of years or at all. So as a, for instance, uh, some uh, some years ago, Guy Smith, who, of course, won the race overall. Never heard of him. In 2000. No, me neither. Terrible man. Um, that uh, that he had to go back and do the rookie test. He hadn't been at Le Mans for some years, had to go back and do that. It's a practical session. Not unlike, in some ways, the kind of process you have to go through for uh, the ring permit at the Nürburgring. But there's also a simulated test, which uh, simulates not just the circuit, but also uh, incident conditions, also weather conditions, and you have to pass that. Not heard at all that there's a mandatory increase in that, uh, but my guess would be they'd have their doors open and their checkbooks wide should you wish to do that. There we go. All right, where are we going to go next? Um, we're going to stay with Michael. That says, Hyperpole is now in the daytime instead of in the dark. Uh, for hashtag you personally, which drivers or teams benefit most from this, Graham? Uh, I'm not sure it makes very much of a difference. Um, you know, I must admit, I do like a qualifying session in the dark. Uh, that, that, to me, it just adds something, some little tinge of drama. If we're going to get the cameras we hope we're going to get this year, um, then actually night qualifying, who's that coming out of the gloom? You know, it, it just adds a little bit more to it. But equally, anybody that's watched effectively on his hyperpole uh, session or been a kind of car by car session at the Nurburgring, that doesn't that, that doesn't want for any uh, for, for drama. Um, I think we're going to see people with maximum attack. Uh, are we going to see any records broken this year? That's going to very much depend on the. Uh, the spec that the Totas in particular and the other LMP1 cars are allowed to field. Um, don't count out if they get a fair wind. The non-hybrid Le Mans, uh, the LMP1 cars being pretty quick this year, if they're given the brakes that we've, we've been seeing them get uh, in recent months, they are capable of being remarkably fast. Remember this that the second fastest time we had ever seen um, from an LMP1 car came, uh, I mean, at Silverstone, sorry, came not from an LMP1 hybrid, but from the SMP Racing BR1 uh, just a couple of seasons ago. Uh, quicker than any Porsche had gone, quicker than any Audi had gone. They are capable of remarkable speed if the balance of performance they're given allows them to do it. Man, you are just a question-answering assassin today. Uh, we're going to go to, let's see, what do we have? A trio of Le Mans schedule questions. Our okay. pal Daniel Summerskill. It would not be an episode of The Week in Sports Cars without a Daniel Summerskill submission or two. We actually refuse to hold the show until they come in, Daniel. You might not know that. Uh, with Saturday warm-up at Le Mans being reduced to 15 minutes, does this mean that teams will no longer get shafted by BOP changes between qualifying and the race, such as uh, with Aston Martin last year and many others beforehand? 
Uh, Daniel says, hashtag me personally. There's not enough time to adapt to the changes in 15 minutes. Uh, I think the answer is all better off. I mean, I I hope we're not going to see ourselves in a position where teams are running and struggling to play catch up. Uh, We've got uh, the spa race for the WEC before the teams uh, congregate. I'm hoping we're going to get some clues there as to what the intention is. I just say this at a time when the organizers should be fully focused on retaining the teams and manufacturers they've got. I think we need to be in a BS free uh, rather than a GT three, a BS free, um, you know, super duper helpful mode to retain the trust and the involvement of in particular, the manufacturer teams that we've got in 2021. I expect 2021 to be a very, very difficult year for just about everybody involved in motorsports at every single level. 2020 has been frustrating to get back to racing, et cetera, et cetera. I think the real tester MP, and I'd be interested in what you've got to say about this. 2021 might be the real tester. Yeah. Do I believe that within the technical group that governs the 24 Hours of Le Mans, which is a ACO thing, but we also know that there's FIEWC inclusion as well. Do I think that this group of people, many of them fine people, do I think that they are going to get together and say, hey, this is a bit of a compromised year, obviously, We've pushed this thing back many months. We have reduced track time, yada, yada. We should also take it easy on BOP and really adjust our mindset to that as well. I would love to believe so. (laughs) I would struggle to say that I believe that conversation will take place or the Mm -hmm. real world application of that will take place. Now, granted, this goes both ways, right? Well, actually, take that back. This usually only goes one way, but if it were to happen, you would hope it would go both ways. What we usually see is some manufacturer gets absolutely BOP'd upside the head, uh, just gets bopped out of competitiveness. That's the thing that usually happens change-wise. Rarely, there are exceptions, but rarely do we see, oh, we have unfairly disadvantaged you as your pace demonstrates in practice and qualifying. Let us be giving and give things to you to be competitive in the race. Usually it's the hammer falling. Rarely is it uh, the hammer being put away and actually gifts being given to those who have been uh, subjected to inaccurate BOP um, decisions. So, I would say if there's anything that I'd welcome seeing, it would be reacting to any team that, again, lap time doesn't always tell the tale, Graham, right? They're, they're the artful effort of sandbagging, the artful effort of, hey, we're going to go out and run in qualifying with too much fuel, right? Like that's the super easy thing to do. Now, granted, provided all cars are required to go across the way bridge uh, or you know, coming in after they're qualifying or all cars are weighed uh, and and go through post-race tech. Maybe you can catch some of those who've intentionally slowed themselves in qualifying, who've qualified poorly, who then 
on a manufacturer level would complain and ask for a break. Assuming that there is true just numeric errors made in the BOP calculation and there are fixes uh, to be made, you would hope that those things would happen. But to Daniel's point, man, (laughs) there's not a whole lot of time to get this figured out. And even if you do end up getting the, the golden BOP adjustment and boom, you're running right up front and running away in your class. You know, there are provisions for such things to be tended to as well uh, that might spoil your day. So it's just a tricky thing, right, Graham? It really comes down to, please get it right the first time. But we also know that the odds are, like, that just would be unrealistic to expect across all the different types of cars. Some with different tires, different driver skills, different this, different that. I mean, I have sympathy, but the people who pay a lot of money to race, Graham, and happen to be in a car... That is just dog poop the whole event. Yeah, they might not be as giving in this regard. There you go. Let's uh, let's get down to our last couple. Uh, you know, I'm going to throw in a little spoiler or a little change here before we come back to uh, hmm. Lamar's stuff. Our pal Megan's Motorsport, a very kind and generous person. Short and sweet. Jim Glickenhouse, Genetic Cars, just too visionary for Imps and the ACO. Your thoughts. <sighs> Megan should Deep also breath. be acknowledged for pulling the pin on the Glickenhaus grenade on the good old social medias when we asked for questions yeah. for the week in sports cars. And Mr. Glickenhaus himself certainly did not avoid the topic. Oh, yeah. And uh, yes, a man who said, I raise your single grenade and, <laughs> and I'm going to push 10 across the table. Here's my here's my exercise, says Jim. Yes. Um, okay. Let's deal with them separately. Should we set the Jim table said, on this too? Because not everybody listening might know what the heck we're talking about. Yeah, we should. Maybe so a proviso about, about everything. Sure. Let's talk about uh, Glickenhaus first. So Jim Glickenhaus, um, a fine fellow, uh, given the okay by his uh, his son Jesse, who's involved in the uh, the efforts to do the thing that he's always wanted to do, which is to put his own money into uh, a Le Mans effort at the point at which the hypercar regulations were coming forward. And I should explain that, by the way. That was his son saying, please don't save your money for my inheritance. I'm fine. Dad, go and do what you want to do. Great. Great family story. So stepped up um, with his SCG uh, 007 hypercar initially, uh, determined that that was going to be, I believe, an Alfa Romeo-based um, yes. engine, yes. twin-turbo V6. That was determined not to be enough with the change to, that came to regulations uh, pushed forward by the Aston Martin Valkyrie. They then went to a Pipo Motors-designed uh, turbo V8 design, so Pipo Motors multiple uh, WRC championship-winning engines for multiple manufacturers. Uh, of course, then we young Mister Durrani, by the way, very impressive, uh, highly skilled race car driver, and builds a heck of a motor too. He does. There you go. There you go. He does that in his spare time. Um, has to change the engine. Aston Martin pull out, which means he's got an engine that doesn't fit the regulations anymore because they've then dumbed down the engines to make um, the uh, conversions work. Uh, makes that change, 
then commits to two cars for the full season in WEC, and then the realization that all the good news of convergence will not apply to him. So it means that despite the fact that Jim proudly will build all the road cars in the future uh, for Glickenhaus in the United States of America, the plant that he's bought from uh, what used to be the Highcroft Racing Place at Danbury uh, is going to be their new um, production plant for the road cars. Race cars will be designed in the USA, but built in Italy. Uh, IMSA, therefore, will not accept the hypercars at the races that Jim would like to race them, principally, of course, the Rolex 24 at Daytona. It would be fair to say he's not very impressed with that. Um, what do I think? It's up to IMSA what they accept. Uh, it is disappointing that they can't find a space for, um, I think, a pretty visionary, uh, effectively privateer, uh, an aspir- uh, aspirant manufacturer from the USA uh, that I do find quite disappointing. I'll be blunt. And I hope that they don't live to regret that in some of the numbers that they're going to have when we get down to 2022 in particular, when LMDH will either be launched or we'll see a further delay. So it's disappointing from the fans point of view. It's disappointing from the enthusiast point of view, which I'm one and I know you're another. It's certainly disappointing from Jim Glickenhouse's point of view, putting in, let's not forget his own money to do this. Uh, if those cars are half as good looking as they look in the renders, they're going to be gorgeous. And I think, I think that's a miss. Ginetta. God, we've been over this a number of times on twist. Haven't we never heard of them as so, well. Yes, I've heard of them as well. So that is UK manufacturer Ginetta, um, owned uh, by Lawrence Tomlinson, bought the company uh, some years ago. Uh, fantastic success in national and international one-make series, up to around GT4 level. It also built GT4 cars. In fact, they helped launch the GT4 um, uh, program, uh, the, the, uh, formula for SRO has tried at a GT3, uh, was also, by the way, the first uh, manufacturer to launch an LMP3 car that effectively allowed the ACO to launch the LMP3 formula in 2015. All bar one car that raced in any race in the first year was a Ginetta uh, before Ligier got up and running. Um, there was some, how can we put this? Uh, there was some unpleasantness uh, at the end of 2015 that saw Ginetta stepping back a little. They stepped back in, though, with a big way with the uh, LMP1 car for WEC. Um, unlucky with the, the way in which it happened with the customer team and their backers. But Lawrence Tomlinson stepped up personally to uh, assist the WEC in the wake of the pullout of SMP Racing's two-car effort to commit two cars for the full WEC. Uh, it is principally, if not solely, his money that is funding this, and that is a very large amount of money indeed. Um, in the background, by the way, they were in the mix on the back of investing in LMP3 uh, to be one of the four license holders for LMP2 from 2017 in the Gibson Engineera. They lost out, uh, believed to be to Dallara. Um, whatever happened in terms of conversations and reassurances, certainly Janetta felt they were in with a very good stab at uh, getting a license from the start of the next LMP2 rule cycle, which is one of the reasons why Lawrence Tomlinson committed his funding into a technology base that would give him 
a bit of a leg up when that opportunity came. And the reality is, as part of convergence, that the immediate announcement was made that would be no tendering, no retendering, that it would be the current four LMP2 chassis manufacturers that would continue with no contest. Um, I've said before, I'll say it again, I think that was the wrong decision. I think that doesn't show the level of loyalty that it should show to uh, you know, a, another current manufacturer, aspirant um, manufacturer moving forward, um, and that is investing, by the way, as well, in a new LMP3 car uh, that, that may well still race in 2020. Um, and I think what you've got at the moment is a very dispirited company in the UK that is thinking, what on earth do we have to do to show that we're serious about this form of racing? I get it. I get the politics. I've zero doubt the reason we've got Multimatic and Delara in the mix has come from the IMSA side of the equation. They're very keen to keep the programs they've got on the table in DPI into the LMDH side of things. Uh, Orica's a gimme with very strong LMP2 sales and uh, with uh, a strong program, with the Acura program in IMSA as well. Ligier, something of the outlier. Uh, have had strength in LMP2, suffered, I think, as things have gone forward, but are now in, uh, in have been involved in DPI, but are also involved in the Peugeot program, which I still believe, by the way, is going to be hypercar, uh, but not obviously in year one. Um, to answer the question really, really quickly, that was a long lead into it. I I find it quite depressing that we're talking in terms of two small let's use the word visionary manufacturers don't appear to be being treated very well by this process and i'm not sure that gives a very good message to anybody else that might want to step up in the future uh, i think we've lost lots of opportunities to encourage small manufacturers into sports car racing and i think we might just have found another two um I, you know jim glickenhouse and the guys will be very welcome in the wec I think that's a. It would be great to, to to find if IMSA could find an opportunity to change their minds for 2022. But the problem you've got is if we've got an MDH coming in 22, Marshall, that's where they're going to want the headlines, not from a team with a year underneath the wheels of their hypercar potentially coming in and stealing the glory from some potentially very big names at the Rolex 24 hour. Uh, in their first year with LMDH, whether that's 22 or potentially 2023. Amen. I'll throw in one short item here related to Glickenhouse. Hey, Rocky, I'll feed you in a little hey, bit, Rock. buddy. Leave me alone. Um, there is a difference in permissions that folks may or may not know about between this 2022 formula in the WEC with Hypercar in IMSA with LMDH, which I swear that name has to change and is going to change before we get there because it's just terrible. We have a significant shift in ideologies in what constitutes a permissible manufacturer. In Hypercar, it is the foundation of that formula, Graham, is meant to be one that caters to a Glickenhaus, a 
Koenigsegg, a Donker Vort, a whomever, along with all the giants. So it is meant to be one that really holds firmly to the super low production boutique, genuine real world hyper car uh, manufacturers. And IMSA, bit of a different tact, wanting one that is more mainstream only. I have heard, and this might go against Jim's many statements on the good old social medias talking about being disenfranchised and held back and whatever by IMSA. I've heard that IMSA may have offered Jim the opportunity to come race his cars in the series, but like every other manufacturer, and we know this to be a firm stance for all, there is a requirement to pay a marketing fee, one that gets used by IMSA, whether it's to help secure advertising time on TV, to put towards print campaign, whatever it is, digital campaigns. All manufacturers are required for those that want to compete in IMSA, from Corvette on down to Audi, if you're going to race, have your cars race in the series, either as a factory or just selling them, uh, your customer GT3 or whatever it might be. And in this case, a hypercar. Well, in order to do that, you're going to need to pay this up to a million dollars per year marketing fee. We know this has been a barrier. So we've discussed on the show and written about ad nauseum. Bentley, not there. Uh, Aston Martin has been in and out of this conversation depending on the year but we know of a couple of manufacturers that have said we'd love to be there mclaren was one of them for quite some time said hey sure we'd love to be an imsa but we either don't make enough money or wouldn't profit enough uh, from selling enough of our gt3 based cars to warrant this million dollars a year so i have heard that jim was offered the opportunity to come and race. And this isn't limited to the 007 hypercar that is, you know, for a formula that's yet to debut. I'm talking 003s, 004s, whatever, the, the cars that he has raced or the new yep. one, which has just come out. And there was a polite decline to do that. So provided that is accurate, it might temper some of the comments being shared and some of the viewpoints that IMSA is just being terrible and trying to strip out the little guy, I believe the same opportunity, the, the pay to play program that BMW and Porsche and, 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 and have all uh, done and agreed to, and have then brought them the door being open to compete in IMSA. Same was presented to uh, Glickenhaus and that was turned down. So, I don't know where I don't know what that means. If that means IMSA's big bad jerks, or if that means equal opportunity was presented and it wasn't taken, and what does that mean? I don't know, but it makes me think maybe IMSA's not a hundred percent the bad guy here. Excellent. What's next? We have two to go. Another one on schedule from our pal Jacob Bame, keeper of the Twictionary all of our malapropisms and whatnots. Why did the ACO stick to the new Le Mans weekend format in the revised schedule, Graham? Hashtag me personally thinks that postponing it to 2021 and sticking to the regular format 
uh, would be beneficial to teams. So the thing is they won't have much time to fix their cars before qualifying in case of a shunt and the whole schedule is even titled than the original one just doesn't seem to make sense. So Jacob definitely in the let's not do it. If it can't be done properly, the way we know it mindset He's also curious if you know why the green flag was moved to 1430 CEST. Right. So, okay. Um, I think I got this this right. So 1430 CST, I think, will be reasonably simply. It'd be down to television time, but also getting as much uh, daylight as possible before we go into darkness at about 8 p.m., uh, because we've got a much longer period of darkness as a result of the race being significantly later. As far as the new weekend format, I can take that one of two ways. Is that to do with the, the hyperpole or is that to do with this compression of the schedule? Dealing with both really quickly, um, they denounced hyperpole. They're certainly very uh, buoyed up by hyperpole. Um, as with any change in format, there's, it's, it's been a fairly divisive thing, but they clearly think this is something they can promote, and who am I to actually differ from that? So there was always every chance that that would be the case. As for the compression in time, that is very simply to cut down on the expense of putting that, uh, that, that race together. Um, we don't yet know whether, and if so, how many, spectators will be permitted to attend the uh, Le Mans 24 hours. I am assured that the media will be in attendance for the Le Mans 24 hours, uh, but likely in much reduced numbers. Um, And certainly believe that we'll have the full um, cabal of uh, TV presentation again on uh, site for the Le Mans 24 hours. So there's some good stuff coming for me. I have to say, I looked at the uh, the schedule. It's going to be very, very hard work uh, for that compressed period of time. You're going to see some big differences in terms of the way that that we, Daily Sports Car, are able to cover it uh, this year, without a shadow of a doubt. It's going to be a very, very busy week. I think I'm going to need ringing out at the end of it. Uh, but it sort of makes sense, if you ask me. Um, it, it It is a period of time where we've got to take uh, a range of matters into account. If the, if this is going to help to reduce the expense for the teams, that can only be a good thing. You are absolutely right though, uh, that this is going to put teams under pressure if they have a big, big problem um, at any point in the days leading up to the race itself. Do I think we'll start 62 cars? I keep my fingers crossed that we do. Um, but you have to say the odds are, based on where we've been in recent years, that without that day off, if you like, on the Friday, uh, the odds have increased that maybe we won't. There we go. We're going to take one more. Kind of similar, similar theme, but we're going to keep asking it and see what we can squeeze out of Graham's brain. Uh, this comes from Matt Hawkins. Given the current circumstances in France, France, surrounding although he wrote surrounding that's a good one that's a that's something i'd say matt so just blame me it just did yes and matt uh matt says in france surrounding COVID 19 could le mans and the 24 race become a members only event hashtag me personally that would limit the amount of spectators in the circuit compared to a first come first serve entry style event interesting 
Um, I've not heard the, I've not heard the members only bit. This is ACO members. Now the ACO should uh, your should listeners not be aware the ACO is a club. effectively uh, well it is it's a regional auto club. It's the Automobile Club de l'Ouest. Kind of towards that's the west. Yes. Um, yep. Yeah, so uh, so the the answer there is that's a pretty good call. <sighs> I, there, there are two or three things that lead into this. One is what are they going to be allowed to do? Um. What would they like to do? Of course, they'd like to have spectators of that event because it's a money spinner. What will they be allowed to do? I think the chances of this being a no-holds-barred 150,000 people on the campsites and in the grandstands are just about zero. Um, I think they will move heaven and earth to get some spectators in uh, and for a variety of reasons, one of which is one of the big commercial uh, money spinners for the race organizers, the ACO, is the hospitality, uh, which means business-to-business customers coming in either to the hospitality suites over the pits or to the great big boondangles either in the paddock or the run down to the Forge Cane. What am I expecting to see this year? Not a lot of that is the straight answer. Um, the, the, the option for it to be ACO members, I think that's a very good call, you know. Um <sighs> I cannot see us um, having very, very significant numbers uh, at all this year. Um, the solution that IMSA have come to at Daytona feels sort of sensible to me, MP, with limited access to camping on the infield at Daytona and I'm sure very much socially distanced attendance for people in the grandstands. I know that's Florida residents only. I think there's an interesting call coming here. The re- The reality here is going to be this. I, I predict this in my Nostradamus-type uh, role in this one. There will be a lot of unhappy people, whatever the decision is that's going to be made. Um, I think they're going to have to be risk-averse. I think that's only sensible. I'm just before we press record on this, uh, looking at another mass uh, attendance event that's happening in your fair country about now, uh, where... Uh, people organising the event, testing positive uh, before putting thousands of people into a closed venue. I don't think you want to be on the wrong side of history on this one, is the straight answer. I don't think the AC or anybody else wants to put profit ahead of common sense. And the very fact, as I've said before, the nature of the way in which the president of the ACO makes his living as a medical doctor would seem to suggest that he's going to be in the particularly risk-averse side of things. What do I expect? I expect there to be people there to watch this race. Exactly how that selection will be made, uh, we'll wait and see. Uh, We've been told the answer will come on June the 30th. Uh, as I said, there was an announcement, uh, in, at least in part, yesterday by the French government. We're expecting another uh, more fulsome answer on the 22nd, which is Monday, isn't it? It is Monday. Yeah. Uh, ACO will announce what they plan to do on the 30th, uh, if not before, and then we can start talking about realities rather than theorising. Um, but uh, yeah, there's going to be a lot. Of dis- I think a lot of disappointed people this year. I think a fair number of the people who would normally have gone have made their call already, uh, and to rebook for next year. 
this might have been written about by yourself or someone else. I truly have not kept up with whether it has been documented, but I think there is a fascinating story to write, hopefully with the agreement and support of a Pierre Fion or similar, and that's on the finances. Um, mm. Just jumping across to my little hamlet here in the good old America, we know that Roger Penske, who now owns the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and the IndyCar Series, has been adamant in saying the event will not be run without spectators. And I haven't heard him mention anything about limited spectator. There's been no modifier applied. Uh, it's certainly given the impression that when the Indianapolis 500 happens, it's currently been rescheduled for August. Many of us are growing in our belief it'll be pushed to October, uh, seeing as how I, as I'm just scrolling through here on uh, the Washington Post, uh, new headline, daily U.S. cases for coronavirus, top 30,000 for first time in seven weeks. So uh, certainly appears that the coronavirus is not indeed going away. Um, that is an event, Graham, that pays out, what, $15 million, $20 million in in prize money. Uh, it is a very expensive race, but it is also one where finances that fuel the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and IndyCar uh, for the entire year all stem from holding this one big iconic race because of the hundreds of thousands of people that buy tickets and hot dogs and parking passes and memorabilia. I realize that Le Mans is slightly smaller in terms of fan attendance, but I also would love to uh, read more about the topic of could the ACO put on the 24 hours of Le Mans with no fans or a limited number of fans strictly from an income standpoint, because while there are other events that take place at Le Mans each year, none of them <laughs> compare in size or financial uprising as the great 24 hour race. So just as IndyCar and this Indianapolis motor speedway, I think would be, facing near financial devastation were they to try and run this race and not bring in all the money from those hundreds of thousands of fans to fuel themselves. Very curious if the same kind of peril would be in place for the ACO if they were to attempt to do zero fans or highly limited numbers. Right, well, that's uh, Weck, Aslam's Elms and Echo. I'm going to dive straight in, mate. So let's go for IMSA before we get to our new section this week. And this time, it's for me to set these questions up for yourself. First one comes from Alec, Alec, excuse me, Alex Eichmiller. Gear and GTR breakup. Any insight on what has caused the breakup between Gear and GRT, not GTR, my apologies. It's not uh, Gran Turismo. Uh, really hope Gear finds a new home and continues, continues in IMSA, says Alex. Oh. How much time you got, Alex? <laughs> uh, okay. Is this an element? Is this an element? Uh, element of don't believe everything you read on the internet? No, 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 no. I mean the yeah, the, the well, yeah. Um, okay, I'm going to try and answer this as best I can, knowing that I can't say everything that I know because it's still a active topic. Uh, there was a story 
on another site, I don't know, Tuesday or so about this, uh, about gear racing and GRT splitting. Accurate. No question there. Just need to mention up front, as I told Graham, I think yesterday when we were chatting about something else, I do love redundancies behind my father's desk at his last shop, Park Road Sob Service. Uh, he had a fine thing that he printed. Uh, it was a little placard that he hung up, uh, and it read Department of Redundancy Department. And I still have that. <laughs> I just love it. It's it's my dad, just perfectly encapsulated uh, in a couple of words. I love that Gear Racing stands for Girl Empowerment Around Racing. Racing. So that one's kind of awesome. Um, we, we then have Gottfried Grasser uh, and the Grasser Racing Team. So, Alex, yes, factual and accurate to say that Gear and Grasser have parted ways. You may or may not have noticed, and it doesn't matter whether you did or didn't, I have not written about this topic for Racer. Uh, I've had one, at least one story that was ready to go, and uh, I'm still working on it. It, it, w- it was ready to go in and it got pulled back out. Um, it's a lot of a lot of rumors and innuendo and some things factual, some things really questionable about this. And at least for what I had prepared, it was pretty darn in-depth. I spent last this, I don't know exactly when, starting last week, but uh, early on through towards the end of the week, I have spent multiple hours on the phone with almost all the, well, there aren't there aren't many key players, but a lot of people, a lot of people, and also have a long on-the-record interview with Mark Ruggieri who is the founder of gear racing racing. Um, I am just waiting to see where that goes because there's some crazy developments that could be happening, uh, both team wise, vehicle wise, uh, who knows if it's driver wise, there's a giant question mark here and, I'm just not at a place, unfortunately, Alex, where I can tell you everything because I still don't have enough to tell you exactly what is going to happen after this decision to stop working together was made. I can tell you that rumors of bills not being paid and monies being owed and yada, yada, yada uh, pose those questions to Mr. Ruggieri who denied all of that, said it was actually the exact opposite. Uh, Overpayments actually took place. I've been able to corroborate that since the conversation. I do know that we have a situation with Christina Nielsen and Catherine Legg, the two women racing in IMSA, and really just about the only women competing in North America, although they aren't North American, if you think of the three major series that uh, either compete solely on road courses or uh, road courses and ovals, that being NASCAR, IndyCar, and IMSA, only one of the three has women competing full-time. Drag racing, separate case, many awesome women competing there. But just in the world of North America, NASCAR, IndyCar, IMSA, 
Christina and Kat are it. And so the possibility of not having them uh, in place is a concern. So according to Mark in the interview that we did that is yet to be published, uh, he has said he cannot imagine and would not want to go racing without them. Now, saying you could not imagine and would not want to is different than at no point in time will I ever race without them. So a desire has been expressed, but again, uh, you could pick that apart and say, well, that wasn't a confirmation. As for which team will host gear, as for who will drive, as for what they will drive, those are still the big questions. I have answers to some of that that I cannot go with, that I cannot mention right now or publish. Because, again, there's still some aspects that are being sorted out. I do hope, truly hope, to give you some definitive answers here, Alex. I also know that I'm not the only one uh, on this beat, so that's probably why I'm not trying to put a lot of things that I do know onto the show here to then point people in directions to try and run those stories before I run my own. Um, Mm -hmm. This, I can just tell you, is something that... There are some concerns for sure about some of the personalities involved and the correct behavior of some. I know for a fact that uh, this breakup actually took place basically the end of May, beginning of June. So this, although this was just reported on this week for the first time, uh, this is actually something that took place a little while ago. So I'd love to give you more, Alex. Um, There's some details in here I just need to hold close to my vest. But think about this. If you are a brand new entrant in gear and you have completed one race with the partner that you've hired to facilitate and run the whole program for you, and there's a breakup after one race, you have to ask yourself what is not happening that should what fundamental like real basics aren't happening that should because if you have gear which is brand new never done anything in racing mark's mark ruggieri's a big fan a longtime passionate guy in the sport but this is his first thing officially and then you have gottfried grasser multiple winner multiple time winner the rolex 24 in the gtd class uh would say in general has a pretty solid reputation graham wouldn't you um Mm -hmm. you have to wonder where the communication or expectations or stipulations in a contract in living up to those again you have to wonder how the heck (laughs) you get in one race and then the poop fest happens and everything explodes. So that's not leveling blame in either direction, but it is just something where you go, huh, if that can happen after one race, makes you wonder if the foundation was as solid as it should have been from the beginning. So uh, stay tuned, Alex. There is certainly more to the story and more to report. And as soon as I am able, I will. Excellent. Let's go for... Uh, so look, Steve Kowalczyk, 
IMSA due to race Daytona on 4th July, but over the past 10 days, state of Florida has seen 1,000 to 3,000 new COVID-19 cases every day, including 260 of only 500 Orlando Airport workers testing positive. If the trend continues, the country, the county rather, or state chooses not to take action and close business and public spaces, does IMSA have their own criteria for deciding to postpone or cancel the race? He says at this point it seems irresponsible to hold even a shortened race meeting in such an environment. I, I don't really know what the policy is meant to be internally here, Steve. And so, yes, to your point, Florida, among our 50 states here, has maybe played a little more loose and fast with COVID-19 and taking it seriously. Not a surprise, though. Their governor and the state's kind of known for, you know, these things. So not a big surprise. As for IMSA's approach, again, we're talking about they have allowed a maximum of 5,000 fans. They have stipulated they must be Florida residents. Interesting call again. What I don't know, Graham, is the selection process, first of all. How exactly are you selecting the 5,000? Is it just first come, first serve? Hey, we sold 5,000 tickets, and those 5,000 will show up. And then they're going to do, which we know, uh, use the same practices applied to all the crews coming in for this uh, July 4th race. So that is the forehead temperature scan, and then the questionnaire, have you done this, done that, any of these things happened in the last 14 days? And based upon, again, the the forehead temperature scan and the answers to those questions, uh, those folks will be allowed into the restricted places they have called out. I believe it's a grandstand section, and then also in select areas uh, in the infield in, uh, I believe, motorhomes, motor coaches, and that kind of stuff. But even then, mm-hmm. um, as I've been told, you're not. if you were to rent a space for your motor coach to go in with a handful of friends or whatever uh, and watch the race from the infield, you're not allowed to leave. You're not allowed to go wander over to turn here, turn there. Like You're expected to effectively quarantine in place. So I'll mention, Steve, that while for the health of IMSA – Financially, again, assuming that 5,000 people uh, is a number that would help, I'm hoping that this all works out well for them. I can tell you that in some of the feedback I've received from fans who have read through the stipulations of what they could or could not do if they were to buy a ticket and then, again, sit in a grandstand or come in in a vehicle and go to a specific assigned spot, other than the sitting in the grandstand part, it doesn't sound super accommodating. <laughs> As a couple of folks have told me, again, just through direct message, yeah, so I really wanted to go, and then I took a look, Graham, and it kind of sounds like it's going to be a sucky experience. Like, all right, well, what Ooh. I can basically see from standing on top of my motor coach uh, is it, or sitting outside under, you know, under a tent or whatever it might be. But basically... We're just stuck in that spot. Might be a lot more fun to just watch it at home. So Mm -hmm. the other aspect here, Steve, so again, from the how they're going to choose, COVID-19 cases seem to be on the rise, et cetera. 
I think they're just going to do the standard forehead and questionnaire routine. What I don't know, Graham, and this is a, just a hypothetical. So let's say they do indeed sell 5,000 tickets. All are taken. If, I don't know what the number might be, say 200 people fail the test, 250 fail the test, just random, and temperatures are high, one of the questionnaires they got wrong, and they are turned away. Is there a plan? Is there like, hey, a couple hundred people, alternates, line up, and you might get in? Um, again, I'm just curious like how you do that. If you end up having to bounce 100 people, 200, whatever it is, does that just mean that, well, we put 4,800 folks uh, in the inside of Daytona International Speedway to watch this race? Do we have a contingency plan to allow more to come in if we do bounce? You know, I don't know. I don't know how serious they want to take this about really trying to fulfill the 5,000. I also will just, you know, be really clear. I'm not totally convinced 5,000 people uh, that they will reach that number or even close to that number. I hope they do for their sake, but... uh, I'm not sure. This one just seems like it's going to be a bit of a moratorium, Graham and Steve, mm-hmm. on where IMSA currently rests in terms of popularity, how uh, sports car endurance racing starved fans are approaching this. Yeah, all right, COVID, whatever, kiss my butt, I'm going. I don't know. It's going to be an interesting one to monitor, though. Isn't it? Isn't it? Stop it. Rocky wants to go. <laughs> If we put Kibble there, he will certainly be uh, in the infield. Without a shadow of a doubt, I think the, it'd have to stand behind the Husky. It's a straight answer. Uh, next one up, this is from Matt Anderson. Uh, he asks, if there's a convergence of GT, reg- GT regulations where the GT3 platform is adopted, that's an if, what effect might this have on Corvette since they started just started the first year of a multi-year program for the C8? Sure, they amortize the cost of the expensive development of their current car over the entire C8 production cycle. So to have to redevelop a new car now would mean they'd have to come up with another development budget which you'd think would be hard to do in the current fiscal climate. Or would IMSA be more lenient about making conversion kits, more about a BOP class between the two platforms for a few years? Interesting. Matt, as I say often, really appreciate your questions. Uh, they are good. So, woo, couple things to think about maybe. And I don't know if they all come back to specific answers because we aren't at a place where we can offer specific answers yet. But so if we're talking GT Le Mans, obviously this is where the new Corvette C8R fits. Uh, GTLM slash GTE Pro. We know that starting in 2021, Graham, we're going to have a numerical problem in IMSA. The Porsche GT team is going away. We hope... BMW will stay. We think and hope Corvette will be there. Assuming those things happen, when we start the 2021 season at Daytona in January, there's the potential of two factories taking part with a total of four cars. We also know that, thanks to our awesome pals at Risa Competizione, we could and should have one independent you know vaguely works affiliated ferrari so there could be five gtlms on the entry list but 
again, just let's talk factory for now. Let, let, let's remove Reese from the conversation. We know we're going to have a participation problem. Taking those two Porsches off the grid, we're going to be down to four factory entries in GTLM. This is just thinking logically, Graham. If mm-hmm. the Rolex 24 Daytona is a very big event here in North America, it's also, I would say, fairly well known on the international stage if we're talking sports car racing and uh, long-standing events. And we also have, and so that takes place the end of January. We know that roughly mid-March, we have the 12 hours of Sebring. We've seen there's been a test offered for WEC teams coming over for that Super Sebring format, and where both IMSA and the WC hold events at Sebring. We know that there's been tests made available at Sebring, what, mid-February, late February, something like that, not too far uh, out of the race window itself. I don't know. Just speaking out loud here. If you have a numerical problem with IMSA at their biggest race, season opening race as well, among factory GT cars, and there's a race that takes place, I don't know, six weeks later, um, where we're going to have what we expect to be a bigger number of the same exact class of cars showing up to do the WC race at Sebring and potentially showing up even before that to do some testing. I wonder does imsa say hey friends at WEC, uh what can we do to kind of put your numbers with our limited numbers to have bigger numbers is there something we can do in the short term as you've kind of alluded to here matt of hey how do we kind of fix this short term before we look at bigger longer term problems to solve is there a way to try and get those healthy-ish gte pro numbers Heck, even GTE am, I don't know, uh, but GTE numbers and WEC added into the IMSA mix at its biggest race because starting off the year with two factories and two cars apiece, assuming they come back, uh, that might be something where those even those factories are saying, hey, IMSA, do whatever you can. Get on the horn to the WEC, even to the teams individually, and say, hey, what can we do to get you to come over so that we have something that looks healthy. Why does that matter? Well, as you know, Graham, and as many of you know, dear listeners, the visuals mean a lot. All the Mm -hmm. big brass from name the various manufacturers, they all turn out for Daytona. It's the first big race of the, it's the first race of the year. It's also the big race of the year, etc. They all turn out. You really do not want the I don't mean the competition directors of these manufacturers. I'm talking the senior board members that come out, the truly influential types. You really don't want them showing up for the big opening race where the, there's a big buzz and other classes in the one year and looks like it's dying on the vine right in front of you. So I'd say that's the thing IMSA needs to think about first and foremost. How can we're just dealing with numbers? There's no manufacturers coming in right now that we know that's going to put two to four extra cars on the gtlm grid so go to the place where these exact cars and this exact formula exist see if you can help get them over early that's the first thing uh looking bigger picture slightly longer lead time what is it graham i believe the end of 2022 
uh, I believe GTLM as its current formula runs through the 2022 yep. season. So 23 in theory would be the first opportunity to reimagine uh, factory GT racing. I think most people that know the sport fan or journalist or program manager are of the mindset that if we don't land in a place, Graham, in 2023 where there's a GT3 Pro and a GT3 AM as the global standard in WEC, IMSA, you name it, we'll be very surprised. Um, I don't think many of us expect GTE slash GTLM as we know it today to continue as we know it in 2023. So I, I think, Matt, that would... If that isn't the case, man, I'll be shocked. So that's looking a couple years down the line. Maybe the most important question here, Graham, and and maybe you can weigh in on it, is so what do we do in the interim? We know that, again, Mm -hmm. this whole Daytona thing, wanting to kick off next season, not looking totally weak and like the class is dying, which would make it really easy for the BMWs and the Corvettes to go, all right, well, this isn't the place to be anymore. Um, We know that's a a thing we need to think about short-term to present a positive look, but what do we do when we leave Daytona? Is there, you know, do you try and implement some sort of this thing we think might be coming, Graham, a couple years from now, a GT3 Pro and a GT3 AM? Do you say, well, hey, let's kind of workshop this thing now while the GTLM numbers for the season are going to be low, right? The full IMSA championship. Do we try and like say, hey, you want to do GT3 Pro type thing? Maybe we could, you know, it'll be in GTLM. That's maybe what we call it, but we'll try and performance balance that. Does that help Cadillac get their old uh, or somewhat recently old, you know, ATS VRs uh, fired up that ran in World Challenge that were drummed out because they were fully pro? You know, I don't know what happens here, but I do know that once we were to leave Daytona, if that's the place where you're trying to at least show out and give a good vibe, you have another year, uh, almost two years of racing to do where you might have to continue to solve this low car count number. Where do you think you do that? How do you think you do that? I think the first thing to say is that the, uh, the, 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 the game has been tipped, hasn't it, by COVID-19 and by teams and manufacturers making decisions now that they probably wouldn't have had to make for some little time. Uh, but having made those decisions, it's easier to keep to the decisions, particularly if those decisions are in the negative. So unfortunately, what that means at a time when um, our friends at IMSA, friends at LMEM for the WEC and the LMS would prefer to be concentrating solely on prototypes, they're now having to think pretty rapidly about the GT family and what comes together. Of course, as well, MP, there's a difference between the mix, as we've said repeatedly on Weekend Sports Cars. Remarkably, there is no, there are not two um, top-level sports car championships that have the same class system across the board. Not two at all. WC doesn't have the same cars as WEC, which doesn't have the same cars as IMSA, which doesn't have the same cars uh, as the Asian Le Mans series, for instance. So um, it's slightly less <sighs> precipitous in Europe because there is a uh, there is a market for customer 
GTE cars, GTLM cars, and that, that market is reasonably healthy. So whatever happens, I think GTLM cars will be around in some regard for two to three years, even if we do lose another, lose another factory. But no doubt in my mind that the question that really needs to be asked right now, is there an appetite for manufacturers in particular, but if not from the group of fairly moneyed uh, GT3 teams for there to be a GT LM, whatever we call it, that incorporates other cars. That's the that's the key call. Are there people that, if you offered the opportunity, have got the means and the will to step up? Because clearly, what you don't want to be doing is spending that technical administrative time to get to some kind of interim solution, and no one turns up. I mean, it's a bit of a nightmare for them at the moment, isn't it? Because they've been presented with all sorts of problems at the point where they've got limited time and resource to to find the solid solutions. People working very hard indeed at the moment, these major race organisations, to get back to racing, to get the prototype uh, picture finalised and to negotiate with the manufacturers and teams that want to be coming to, to do that and then to be presented with... To be blunt, a great big truck full of poop um, on the GT front as well, probably a year before they wished they had to deal with it. Um, So the answer, I think, is going to be it will be fine, but I think we've got some rocky days. And my guess is we're going to have some disappointments along the line in terms of teams that we've currently got that won't be there, teams that will say they'd like to be there that can't actually raise the money, and hopefully some pleasant surprises from left field organizations that might just come and step in, whether or not that's in a pro-am formula or whether that's in a full pro formula. I remain across the board, and it's not pointing at Imsa, and it's not pointing at WEC, and it's not pointing anywhere, remain skeptical that we can at the moment be confident of sustainable grids with pro GT teams for much longer into the future. And we've said it before, MP, and I'll say it again now, there could be a rebalancing here between prototype and GT underway. And it might be that the ability of manufacturer, customer sport, whatever, to get LMDH programs off the ground might be the determining factor as whether or not there is a market at all for pro GT racing moving forward. I have the name for it, by the way. Go for it. Hashtag GTLMDH3. Wow. That's bad. What does the H stand for? You forgot the... Well, I'm just... It's LMDH, so, you know, GTLMDH and 3. So we've just kind of thrown everything together into the hopper. None of it makes sense. So that's my thought. Well, we're gonna, well I'll tell you what, we'll park this one. Because it does come back in what? in our new guest our new guest session just a little uh, later. Got two quick questions to finish off with him, sir. Otto Kinsel the fourth says he's bought JJ O'Malley's new Daytona prototype book. Overall, found it really interesting. Loves the stats, being able to see the life history and results from every chassis built. Fascinated him. Clearly, he says the Gen 3 DPs, especially the Corvette bodywork, were the most beautiful looking of the DP interactions. I think I would add in here the most beautiful or the least unacceptable. You decide. Huh. Um, 
Do you think if the Gen 3 cars with the original DPs, with the reception from fans and media alike, have been more positive? You want to get stuck into this one? Yeah. Uh, Otto, I think, Otto, not Otto, Otto, I think you are absolutely smack dab. Oh, yeah. Right in the middle, perfect here. The thing about race cars for people who look at them and like them and want to go see them. We just can't ignore that the looks matter, just like the sounds matter. I mean, there's many things that matter. And if you unleash something that is just so damn ugly. Proto-turtles, yes. Uh, right? Um, it's really hard to then expect there to be massive fandom for them. Uh, I heard... From many, many people back when Grand Am was a thing, and I was often and happily and readily saying, this is another ear must moment, these are the biggest pieces of shit I have ever seen in my life when it comes to prototypes. Uh, the arguments that I heard from the people who were real diehard fans of Grand Am was all about the low-cost the close racing and mm -hmm. the general ease of entry for drivers, teams, and you name it. I never heard, not that I recall, anyone saying, man, these things just make me so happy to look at. Performance-wise, they're amazing, etc. It's, I mean, just, I can't recall any of that. So it was this heavily modified, yeah, but, you know, it's cheap, so there's a lot of them, and it, it's easy for people to get into. Again, I don't know if that's really the, the really strong argument about something being worthy or of value, but that's the argument that was made. I can say this for sure. Yes, no doubt, the racing was often very close in, among the lead pack, usually among... The Riley chassis, uh, we know that, you know, to start the formula, the Dorn chassis was a very good one. But we know for sure that they were very close in terms of competition. And how could you not? <laughs> That's the thing where, not trying to be too harsh here, but the whole, oh, but the racing was so close and it was amazing. And that's what made this amazing and unique. I just always come back to the fact of you go, well, these were very heavy. These were very low powered. These did not have downforce in any meaningful way or grip in any meaningful way. And the rules were so brutally restrictive. How could these things not be on top of one another the whole time? The entire formula was about cheap, low cost entry point into sports car racing, into prototype racing. And so as a result, no surprise to anyone, the rules made it impossible for individuality to really be a constant thing. Again, the Riley chassis ended up being uh, the dominant one for the majority of this time span. But coming back to Otto's primary question, yeah. Had we started off with Gen 3, I think a lot of the shortcomings would have been overlooked. At least you could say visually, boy, these things 
were very mm-hmm. pleasing. And hey, if they're running very closely together as well, maybe we'll ignore the fact that they aren't, you know, weren't super fast prior to Gen 3, prior to adding on modern technology and brakes, real aerodynamics, and so on. So, yeah, if we'd started with Gen 3 Auto, I think we'd still have a Grand Am series today. I think Grand Am would still be alive and would actually be really strong and powerful had they started where they ended up. Uh, the just lack of vision and so firmly embracing simplicity uh, from the outset, though, is what underwhelmed and what really just dug a hole that was nearly impossible for it to get out of. And then you have the ALMS <laughs> with this borrowed from Europe uh, LMP 900, LMP 675 formula that takes off, gets rebranded as LMP 1, LMP 2, um, and really just goes tearing through the U.S., growing in popularity and thrills and diversity. And yeah, uh, could not have been a worse time to go simple and dumb uh, because while the car counts were very high, yeah, uh, there's not a lot of people talking fondly, Graham, about, oh, 2005 Grand Am. Ah, the best thing ever. I'll never forget it. I've never really heard anyone mention the phrase golden era and Grand Am. And that's unfortunate. Me, Truly, it's unfortunate. It's just reality. Let, 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 me, let me give you these words. This, oddly enough, is from Delhi Sports Car this very week. Okay. And we have a, a, a in lockdown, we started a, a series of features best car, worst car, dream car. Worst car. Quote, in terms of sports cars, it was probably the original Daytona prototype because it was a real step back in time, though the racing was good fun. Remember, we're talking about Porsche having their first carbon fiber cockpit in 1998. Ten years later, you're back into a tube frame chassis with the radiators at the front of your feet and a bar in the middle of the windscreen and things like that. Quote, the tire was shocking as well. It was a bit of wood. It wasn't as if it was a racing tire. I don't actually even think it was pneumatic. The words <laughs> of Alan McNish. <laughs> <laughs> uh, our man. Now, this, by the way, this, by the way, in, in the same interview in which he described his uh, worst car ever as a Formula Three thousand Lola, um, which I don't know if the uh, the uh, the viral video reached the states of the man trying to control his dog on Richmond Park, which was trying to round up the herd of deer, um, and he, he did uh, he did actually uh, equate the handling of this Lola to a bloke trying to control his wayward Labrador. Wow, um, uh, beautifully done. Uh, that's Otto. We've got one more. I, I've got partial end, uh, answer to this. Well, I don't know what you know about this. Rick Ware Racing, where have they gone? Jacob Baym asks, what's happened between Cody Ware and Rick Ware Racing? How does it affect, affect Rick Ware Racing's Le Mans program and their planned uh, IMSA GTD campaign? That was supposed to be with uh, the Audi, wasn't it, uh, to replace the LMP2 program. I can tell you, I've spoken to... Cody, I know he's made this clear on social media in, in, in answer to some other questions. He is no longer with the Rick Ware Racing team. Uh, so, um, um, whether or not that's a business issue or a family issue is for him to actually make public um, uh, elsewhere. I can tell you that Cody is closing in on a deal to race elsewhere. Um, as for the way that that will affect what happens at Le Mans, they remain on the Le Mans entry list with the Riley Multimatic Mark 30 chassis. 
that car, I believe, is with their um, racing partners, uh, Euro International in Italy, who have their own entry um, on the list as well with the Ligier. As for the future for the GTD program, I have to tell you, I've no idea. Uh, you're the official source of all Rick Ware racing information. So I would not dare weigh in and tread on those finally, finally cured toes of yours. So uh, I got nothing to quote Flavor Flav and nothing for you, man. So it sounds like we are done with IMSA. Rocky is just trying to climb up uh, on my leg using his claws. Very appreciated, Rock. Thank you, buddy. Um, We are, what are we? about an hour and a half in um wow well i mean we spent 10 minutes talking about all kinds of things before we got going on the show itself uh but yeah we're at the approximate uh, almost hour and 40 grams so you tell me where we go with i don't know 20 minutes or so well i'll tell you what we're going to do we're going to do a quick run through our special section on the Deutsch, uh, turin master and wagon and in and in yes 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 yeah, it's a hot mess of what the hell are we going to do about this uh, by Gerhard Berger. Uh, why uh, Why don't you, and I'll, I'll throw some of these at you, why don't you unplug yeah. and replug your headset because we're just at the, we're starting to get the ro- Mr. Roboto routine. And we keep this stuff in, by the way, now. We don't edit this stuff out. We're, uh, I'm, hoping, I'm hoping that's better. There we go. Uh, it's so much better. I'm doing a little happy dance while seated. Uh, we are going to roll into the D to the T to the M and let's see. And thank you for sending in a lot of these questions and you know where we're going to go. Where else would we go? Daniel Summerskill. What do you think of the DTM's idea of using LMDH in 2022? I would suggest my new hashtag GTLM H three. Um, Hashtag me personally, I don't think the ACO or IMSA will be too happy after spending years in convergence for the DTM to steal their concept, at least in the first year. Uh, I've said before, and I'll say it again, I think DTM is dead man walking right now. Uh, for what it's worth, there is heritage in uh, national German racing for a prototype-based formula with DRM. As, as was back in the day that uh, raced into the early 80s with Group C prior to that, Group 6, Group 5, and even Group 2 touring cars. Um, 935s, 936s, 962s, you name it, it raced there in single driver sprint format. Uh, so it's happened before. Um, hi, Rock. Um, but for me, it's just too little too late. Um, I think it's a bit of a desperate, uh, you know, throw the dice far more realistic i think is a uh gt3 sprint uh, format but even there they can't resist the fact that they might have to do something about making those cars quicker to match the tight lap times from for the uh for the um uh, the super gt slash dtm uh, class one cars it just strikes me as this is very very late to be thinking about you know, a remarkably different formula with nobody currently stepping up to say, yes, we think we'd like to do that. Um, They've looked at GTE in the past. We know that. uh, And that was rejected. They've rejected TCR as being not at a high enough level for uh, what they'd like DTM to be. 
they'd have to find some way to struggle through 2021 at the very least. And my guess is probably 2021 and 2022 before LMDH even became a prospect. Um, I'm just not remotely convinced they've got enough support to keep this on anything other than life support for a year. We have a bit of a modifier there and you already touched on it a bit, but from our pal, Tom Firth, curious if you think there could be a trend of teams and drivers walking away from GT3 temporarily um, in and around DTM. You know, obviously, again, we've had this, could they consider LMDH thing happening? But, it, I mean, the yep. easy answer, easiest one is just go GT3. Doesn't necessarily have to be your permanent decision, but, hey, we need to come up with something to put numbers on the grid. Um, Tom's curious if you think we might see uh dtm pushing away from gt3 as well as the logical short-term answer uh well the moment uh what we believe is that gt3 is being seen as the preferred solution uh to their they hope short-term i believe terminal difficulties in the current format uh class one appears to be dead by the way let's let's put that one um right out there straight away there does not appear to be any kind of appetite to keep class one alive in DTM terms, at least. So that, that's, I think is more or less done. Um, there are wise words being said, they think, uh, about, uh, admiring IMSA. When we talk about LMDH GT three, uh, they're talking about doing their own BOP and making the cars, uh, rather quicker than they currently are, as I say, to match, um, lap times as i think i said last week they're not going to get very much help from sro that appears to be a somewhat broken relationship to do with the way that they've been behaving to do with calendar um negotiations um i'm not seeing a plan really i'm seeing an awful lot of this might work and that might work but you know here we are in the, the end of june uh with their season for 2020 not having started yet um, with no plan and therefore absolutely no guarantee unless they've got some guarantees from BMW that they'll turn up with 20 M6 GT3s. Bet they haven't. Um, but the, the reality here is who's going to pay for a dozen-plus grid of professionally driven GT3 cars in sprint races in very expensive race programs? I simply don't see where that is coming from. Uh, you know, I... In English parliamentary parlance, I refer the honourable gentleman to the answer I gave some moments ago uh, about the wider issue of of, um, of the GT racing in pro terms in endurance racing. For my money, you know, you're you're talking here about shorter races. Okay, maybe with a better return on investment, some endurance races, if you can get manufacturer money into it because they've got a good TV package and a good audience. But that audience is basically turning up to pay to watch the DTM, not another GT3 program. And if they did want to watch GT3 cars in Germany, they've got both the VLN, uh, let's face it, the most beautiful circuit on the planet, and they've got a very passable uh, national GT3 championship, albeit with you know a mix of pros and pro-ams uh, in the ADAC GT Masters. I can't see it can't see it but it will take some persuading that this has got any future whatsoever beyond the end of 2020 mm. our pal ryan terpstra sent in a question that i'll be really honest 
it's like about half of Ryan's questions. I don't fully understand it, so I'm sorry, brother. Um, our pal R.J. O'Connell. Hey, R.J. Writes, yeah, writes in to say, would DTM adopting the LMDH platform necessitate uh, confirmation that the H indeed stands for Hockenheim? Yeah, I mean, you know, R.J., you've nailed that one. Thank you. I, I was sitting on that, but I decided we're going to go ahead and do a hashtag breaking exclusive scoop here. I, I think I think the answer is, at the moment, it's hand a hock is what it actually comes down to. It's, um, it's LMDH, hands up, boys. Um, I think it's time. Time's up. If they're going to persuade me and others otherwise, and tragically for them that includes a substantial proportion of the industry involved, I'm afraid they have to make a decision what's going to, uh, what's going to be the plan, announce that decision, and also announce that they've already got takers, because at the moment we haven't got any of that. Mm. Let's take one more in DTM, and I realize we're shorting ourselves on time a little bit for fun and hanging out, but hey, well, this is the people's show. Y'all send in a bunch of DTM. We're going to do DTM. Uh, Tom Dore closes the DTM discussion with seeing how DTM is all but dead, Graham. What happens with the Class 1 convergence they're having with Japan Super GT Championship? So this is GT500 Acura NSX slash Honda NSX. Move to a front-engine layout to fit those rules. So would the series consider relaxing the regulations next the next time they get revised? Also mentions he loves the show. I'm guessing that right now in Japan, we've got an awful lot of people uh, saying things about, uh, you know, emails and, uh, you know, voicemail messages. Of the, of, you know, the kind of the ilk, which is, hey, mate, hope you're doing OK. We've sent you those messages. Haven't heard much. Getting a bit concerned. I think it's like that right now. I suspect that right now there's a whole lot of nothing at the end of that line. The the reality for DTM is that the Japanese factories are not going to be the cavalry here. And for me, future of class one might be, do you see BMW taking a couple of cars out to go and do Super GT? Uh, Might that have a bit of a payoff? Uh, We we are going to hashtag just have to wait and see, but I I strongly suspect at the moment there's some very angry people at Honda. Oh, well, two categories left to go. I'm going to let you do your normal deal. Tell us where we're going, my friend. Let's get into fun. Fun. Uh, Let's get into fun. Let's do that thing. Where are the fun questions? Uh, There we go. Right. Okay. Uh... Adam Kapisky, I think, might... uh might lead us off here All says right. uh resubmit for a general or fun and whatever in happiness adam says during this quarantine time pub quizzes have sprung up mm. from all over is this something that you and mp and the daily sports car gang would have an interest in doing in this wonderful sports car world well we have come very close and may still do this for a commercial client from Daily Sports Car and from my spin-off uh, consultancy. So watch this space. I'm waiting for the nod that we'll get something uh, going for this. The, the reality at the moment is we're just looking for ways to actually pr- pump money through a business right now. And there's not been a whole heck of a bunch of that, I'm afraid, in recent months. Um, we're also now very rapidly going to get into the planning for getting back to racing. And that uh, is going to cause uh, no end of work 
uh, for for me in terms of preparation for that racing, making sure the commercial clients we have at those races are propped up. And in my instance, um, I've spent much of my time today trying to get my head around replacing the DSC fun bus. Um, and uh, there's a rather surprising potential new addition to the DSC fleet coming uh, on that front. Uh, we did, uh, me and Mrs. DSC editor went and had a bit of a look at one uh, today. I'll tell you what that's all about. Uh, in the coming weeks, if that comes uh, comes forward, um, we've done quizzes before. I will say this, Adam. There's a huge amount of work involved in it, and right now, I am pretty fully extended with a plan, not just to get regular content onto Daily Sports Car, but to prepare for what comes next. And by what comes next, I mean two things. Commercial survival, um, which is a major issue for everybody at the moment in the media, uh, which means that when the opportunities come up, I'll have to be taking them. And the second thing is a lot of travel. What has been happening? Well, myself and Stephen Kilby have been working our nuts off to put one hell of a lot of material uh, into the back end of Daily Sports Car. And here's the bad news for our rivals. We've got something like two months worth of content that's actually already there in the background. Um, so some of that is kind of repurposed um, old uh, stuff that we've run previously on previous iterations, Delhi Sports Car updated. Some of that is new content. There's a lot more still to come. But we are talking in the dozens and dozens and dozens of really good stuff that is ready to go at a moment's notice. We are not going to be short of material, but we're still adding to that pile. Uh, so I would uh, I would say I'd love if, if we'd have thought about this. I think at the start this could have been a thing. The problem right now is that we are now heading into uh, days and weeks before I have to pack. Uh, people and kits into a car I haven't yet got and that's going to be I think the priority at the moment is um, getting everything in place to be in the places we need to be with the people we need to be there to make sure there's an opportunity to earn money when we're there and that's uh, if we can do it we'll do it but um, my guess at the moment is we may have run out of time wow there we go uh Lance Snyder uh, says this is for Marshall Pruitt personally. Thanks, Lance. Ooh. Marshall, you have to watch an episode of Seinfeld. Whoa, do you hate me that much, Lance? <laughs> the worst show ever. Uh, you have to watch an episode of Seinfeld. Who in the IMSA paddock would you choose to watch it with you? You have to make a choice. And no, you cannot reach across the pond and bring in Christoph Bouchou. I see where this is getting to. He gets it that it's terrible. Yes. Oh, man. I mean... My first thought would be Bourdais because (laughs) he and I love, hate one another. He's a true, dear personal friend. Uh, But, you know, we certainly know how to get on each other's nerves pretty quickly. I think I would have a brother, though, in Sebastian here. Uh, But first, I don't even know if he owns a television or watches it. But I just have to believe, like me, he would hear that just stupid intro music and go okay i know this is going to be terrible uh you don't have to play this kind of cartoon circus music sounds for a comedy show like that's a little on the nose but i am confident that sebastian would be able to sit there 
and hate watch it with me for a half an hour. So I think that would be fun. Uh, and just the amount of cursing would be hilarious. The other thought would be Montoya, but I'm afraid yep. he would like it. I can never <laughs> tell with the guy. He might think it's the most hilarious thing ever. And and again, Juan is many things. I think some folks have a stereotypical view of him as maybe not being the sharpest guy or a little simple or what. He's not. The guy is so smart and so complex. But part of me wonders if he would just really like it. And that might actually be the be- the better answer because then I would spend 30 minutes just eviscerating him and saying the nastiest possible things about him. And then he would be saying them back just as good, if not better. So one of those two, I'm going Bourdais because at least I know I'd, I'd have a brother in hating this garbage, but I think the best answer though would be JPM because he'd probably like it. And we would just rip each other to shreds the whole time. Uh, let's see what else. Uh, James counter uh, your question here. I just want to grab because I have an anti answer. Uh, James says favorite food for an endurance race. He says, hashtag me personally cheese on toast. Um, well, when you say endurance race, I, my mind goes towards a proper endurance race, a uh, two hour and 40 minute IMSA race while enjoyable. Meh, I don't really call that an endurance race. I'm talking 12, 24 hour minimum. I can tell you what you don't want to do, which made this mistake. Graham probably somewhere around, I think it might've been 2015, 2014 or 2015. Uh, myself and my old pal, um, Walter Mellison from, uh, why am I forgetting the name of his, uh, website? Uh, I completely am forgetting Walter's website, but anyways, um, he and I would often go out and shoot at Le Mans and for whatever reason, we ultimate car page, uh, dot com Walter and I've managed race morning to i guess not eat so we went out to shoot the start somewhere near the ford chicane somewhere near the start finish line and said all right man we gotta go eat so we walked out went outside the track uh, and so this is down where the now you have the porsche whatever center there yep. uh drivers left of the ford chicanes there's the ferris wheel and other things there's also a pretty solid uh, array of uh, little food joints. And you so, didn't go for the red sausages. Tell me you didn't go for the red sausage. Um, it might have been the red sausage. It was it was some sort of uh, proverbial bangers and fries or something, you know, something like that. Chips, I should say. Um, it was this huge tubed meat product in a huge, <laughs> I think it might have been um, a some sort of baguette, but large baguette. So there was a lot of, it was a big sausage. It was a big hunk of bread to go with it. It was, you know, very large thing. Uh, and then a bunch of French fries thrown in as well. And it had some sort of secret sauce on it. It looked amazing. It was so satisfying. I mean, seriously filled our stomachs. Like you would not believe everything we had failed to put in it to, prepare ourselves to give us energy for the day. It did that. Oh, I mean, it solved that problem. So this is again, three, four o'clock in the afternoon. 
but it also created another problem. And that was normally we would, after taking the start shots, we'd wander up the hill towards Dunlop uh, curves and whatnot, and then wander down the hill and blah, blah, blah. And then we'd come back and then, you know, after a couple hours, um, download everything, get some key photos, send them to wherever, post them, whatever, and then head back out timing things to get out for sunset wherever we were going to shoot it usually out somewhere uh on the back straight well let's just say we didn't exactly get up the hill uh we started walking a ways and as i recall uh we got up the hill far enough to where we uh, sometimes shoot the start um looking down the full length of the front straight and beneath that spot uh there's a little um underground little tunnel that you can walk through to cross cross over at the track well again normally we'd go up over the hill and down and around and come back and blah 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 down to uh tet rouge and come back well i think we made it kind of sort of towards the top of the hill and oh there was that look in welter's face of there is something bubbling Oh, is it bubbling? Gastric emergency. Oh, my goodness. Yes, there were fireworks going off in that man's digestive yep. system. And there were, there were SMS messages getting fired at a very rapid rate to his brain that um, his digestive system had very, very little in the way of intent to hold on to the item he had just uh, tried to uh, put into his system. And so we, I had to reroute and crossed uh, under the track, walked right back down the hill towards pit lane, and I don't know if I saw Wouter for an hour uh, once we got into the media center. It was just, it might have been, something could have been bad. I don't know. But I can tell you that I think my system might be accustomed to more trash than his, because I had some of the same feelings, but it wasn't a showstopper. Uh, but I can just say, James, that sometimes that big comfort food looking thing, at least if you're working uh, during an endurance race, man, it, it we both looked at each other when we happened to see that walking by. And it was just like, oh, I could not have been happier at the site, man. It ran through us faster than it should have. I was able to hold on. Uh, I shouldn't say us. I apologize. It ran through him immediately. It did the opposite to me, Graham. And I'm not going to go into detail here, but I almost missed my flight because I was having such a digestive emergency where. (laughs) This was the following day. Oh, this was Sunday night. Yes. Oh, wow. Yes. Um, went back to the, I was trying to leave the track. Well, we did successfully leave the track with myself and my friend, Matt Cleary. And, Mm -hmm. uh, I think the plan was to just run to the, we'd left things in our hotel nearby hotel green seven. We're just, it's just right next to the track and a blast over, grab a couple things because we didn't want to leave it all sitting in the car during the race and then head out. So he he genuinely just stayed in the car. I'm like, don't worry, I'll get it. We'd packed beforehand. I'll just stay here. I'll get it. Be right back. So where Wouter spent an hour in the good old Le Mans turlet, uh, within an hour of having that lunch thing. Yeah. 
I can tell you that it acted, it was meat-based cement in my system. And so I went through the entire 24 hours of Le Mans Plus and got into the hotel room to try and grab our stuff. And I don't know if it was a sound. I don't know if it was a smell. I don't know what it was, but it was something that said, you ain't going nowhere anytime soon, idiot. And I leapt into the bathroom and I must have been in there for two and a half hours, maybe three. Yes. And I'm going to stop the story right there. I can just tell you, please, please do. Please. It was one of the (laughs) least pleasant experiences I have had at a motor racing circuit in my life. And I can just tell you, if you've ever wanted to prevent yourself from going to the bathroom, this little shack, it's pretty awesome, Graham. The 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 Russian roulette of either poop yourself almost immediately or turn into cement and stop everything. This is a pretty amazing thing. And best of all, we paid for it. So, boy, and boy, did we keep paying for it. Uh, there you go. Um, so uh, that, ladies and gentlemen, is how that little restaurant got its Michelin star. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, have we got time for a couple of general? Of course we do. Let's kick off with Gary Quartermain, who says, Graham, so thinking, when the circuit's finally open to the public, the theme circuit series organisers can be looking at you, Dawn in motorsport. Surely series organisers sharing the circuit, making the double-barrel double events, would be an obvious way of cutting costs for all concerned, bringing larger crowds, bringing trade stalls, etc., etc. Which series would or could you think be prepared to share the deal? Uh, LMS, and, ELMS and Endurance Legends at Donington Park would certainly be a great start. Well, ELMS were supposed to have uh, Endurance Legends on the bill for a couple of races this season. I think we're probably talking about next season rather than this. I would like to think that people would think along those lines. I have to tell you, there is absolutely no sign that anybody's thinking along those lines at all at the moment. Uh, whether or not that changes in the, the weeks and months to come, we'll have to hashtag wait and see, uh, but not seeing any sign whatsoever um, of the doubling up that uh, you described there. Uh, we've seen a little bit of that uh, in uh, 2020 MP, haven't we? So, for instance, IndyCar with the SRO GTs at Indianapolis. But that's about as far as I can think it's gone so far. IndyCar and NASCAR coming up here on yeah. July 4 at Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Yeah, again, we, we've mentioned this uh, a couple times on the show last few months, and it still stands. It's still uh, absolutely uh, spot on here, Gary. Yeah, uh, bringing different things together. It just seems like it's the right time to do it, like many things going on right now in the world where you go, boy, uh, has there ever been a better time to make these changes or adjustments or open our minds to new possibilities? This just seems like one of them. I've cited this more than once in the past. I've maybe never seen a motor racing event, Graham, more heavily subscribed from both a fan and even media standpoint, then 2008 Mid-Ohio combination Ooh. IndyCar, American Le Mans Series, and World Challenge. 
uh, it was so massive in terms of popularity the uh, the then owners of the circuit actually erected this massive external uh, air-conditioned tent next to the media center just to be able to handle the overflow. I mean, this was just this giant thing. Now, granted, IndyCar in 2008, the cars weren't, like, super awesome, but still, it's biggest names and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But here are these two titans of, of road racing with IndyCar and the American Le Mans Series plus World Challenge, and you couldn't get in, you couldn't get out. I mean, it's just ridiculous how many people were there on the professional side and on the fan side. And I, again, I'll just never forget that event because it represented exactly what Gary's talking about. Hey, yeah, in theory, your rivals in the marketplace, get over it. Come together, put on something that fans would go, that's incredible. You're going to get the results. There you go. We're going to finish it off because I think we're running pretty late here uh, with a combination of two of these questions, MP. Um, one comes from Jacob Bain. The other one comes from our good friend Baxter. Uh, Jacob says, semi-serious question. How are you feeling about racing coming back in July? Are you hyping up, staying cold and professional? Also, is there anything at all you'll actually miss about the lockdown period once the season properly starts? Baxter says, is it too much for the, to ask for the coronavirus to do as a solid and kill driver ratings? Um, you want to answer those first and I'll crack on and finish them? Sure, and I've got one uh, one question I want to throw in as well that might end up being our sure. final. Uh, boy, missing. I actually don't know if I'm going to miss anything from this. I would say I'm welcoming the I'm wel- welcoming this opportunity, Jacob, to get Jacob. I just said Jacob. Please add that to the list. Um, yep. I welcome the opportunity to get back into a sense of rhythm that has been lacking and that has been very strange. My wife and I were discussing this yesterday and how already our lives have been very hectic and uh, feels precarious at times because, well, we have a number of set appointments every week. There's also inevitably one or two that get thrown in. And so, you know, the times could change each week or there could just be a day that was empty last week that now we need to travel. This past week is similar where I think every day barring, yeah, every day except Wednesday, um, we were traveling somewhere for something, if not having multiple appointments in a row thrown in. So already just on the home front, been dealing with a schedule that's all over the place. Then with a lack of racing, it's also then trying to fill in and create stuff and here, I think, is just a case where, honestly, uh, we just look forward to having something that's normal uh, with racing to cover. What about you, Graham? How am I feeling about it coming back in July? Here's the irony. Uh, it sort of feels a bit early, is the honest answer. Raring to go, looking forward to, to road trips with my little crew, my friends and colleagues at Daily Sports Car. Um, but part of it does feel a little bit early, bearing in mind the figures we're still seeing coming out of various European nations, the uncertainties about travel arrangements, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a whole uh, mass of detail that we still need to kind of deal with. But yes, looking forward to getting back into some sort of groove. Uh, absolutely having to accept there are going to be some real challenges about 
that, not least from my perspective, is that for some of those races, I will be part of a TV crew. For some of those races, I'll be part of the general media crew. And those two crews will not be mixing at the race meeting. So that for some of those races, I'll likely be operating for TV as well as in part as journalists, but not with access to the media room, for instance. So there's a whole range of challenges that we still need to unpick here uh, that are not yet absolutely clear as to what the net effect is going to be on ability to function in what used to be regarded as being normal. Uh, for Baxter, is it too much to ask for the coronavirus to do solid and kill driver ratings? Tragically, yes, it is too much to, to hope for. I think that's going to be a real thing for the rest of our naturals, I'm afraid, Andrew. Um, but, yeah, I'm a bit torn. Um, I've had plenty of time with those I hold dearest, and I think we've enjoyed most of that. Um uh, we do need to get back to normality, but I think normality is some little way away yet. I don't think we're going to be back to what we would regard as being normal much before the beginning of 2021, and even then, if we're lucky. We'll just say thank you as well here, Graham, to – I'm sorry, I'm having to scroll back up and get to the question. Dustin Marlowe. Your question will close our show. This is my daughter is going through a phase where she loves cars. Sounds like you got Excellent. an awesome daughter there, Dustin. Uh, this got me wondering what would be the first step or two that she or any other interested person should take if they wanted to pursue a career in racing as an engineer. Ooh. What would be a common first rung of the ladder? Something like getting work experience in a general mechanics garage, volunteering at SCCA or such events, pursuing a degree in mechanical engineering, etc. Well, thanks for sending this in, Dustin. First of all, I hope that your daughter isn't three, because if you're already trying to set her up on the work path, you know, we, <laughs> let's get her through kindergarten first. But um, kidding aside, a couple key things to consider would say that any modern racing engineer any modern engineer involved in racing, because there are more disciplines than just race engineering, but any engineer involved in racing today has a fine understanding of computers, software, data, analysis, coding is one. We're again, not all code, but uh, there's a lot of custom software being written, a lot of things that it might not be a full-fledged software program, but it could be an app or tool that takes information and parses bits from it in some way. It's a lot of laptopy type knowledge that is found as really a baseline uh, with race engineering today. So that doesn't mean your daughter needs a computer information science master's degree, but she would need to be very proficient with a laptop and software. Again, I realize that this is almost a silly thing to say because we assume most people in the world today who would lean towards a job like this would already be well-versed with computers. But this is a case where power users, if you want to put it that way, person that knows a lot of things from the data and computational crunching side, you are going to be giving her a really strong basis. And that's because in so many instances, 
engineers, I'll just say race engineers right now, often start out as data engineers, the data acquisition geek, or now often called performance engineer. So it's the ability to understand the software, the hardware as well, the sensors, what they do, how they do, writing, whatever formula to extract the information that you want from these items. So that's a good place to start. That's separate from the mechanical vehicular side, and that's something where you're spot on. Uh, Could be working in a garage. It could be going through some form of technical aptitude type school you know becoming to become an auto mechanic uh, i would re- absolutely recommend that for her if she has zero experience in that just because you're going to learn about how things go together how things interact uh, when you press on the brake pedal what happens well there's electronics involved there's hydraulic fluid there's mechanical actuation of the calipers there's all kinds of like Help to understand these things because jumping right off and doing that in racing, you can do it for sure. But uh, I would say there are enough complex systems, your average road car, where if she does have a desire to do something like this, gaining that knowledge is only going to serve her. How does the engine mate to the gearbox? How does the engine and its internal spinning then transmit that force to the gearbox what does the gearbox do with it what's inside the gearbox how do those things work when you get into the racing and the engineering side you do need to understand all these things because you're having to think about how one change you would make to the car would affect another could be changing a gear ratio could be trying a different clutch vendor it could be a lot of different things having the knowledge in the back of your head of how all the things work and interact how they go together and don't, um, that's key. The volunteering at SCCA events, that's what I would strongly recommend. Or, again, SCCA is the top and oldest club racing organization here in the States, Graham. Uh, This could be whatever you would recommend in the UK, whatever it might be in Germany or Australia, wherever you might be, there's surely some form of local or top national amateur organization getting out to those events and offering to volunteer, asking questions. Hi, I really love this Formula Ford that you're running. What the heck is a Formula Ford? What is it? What mm-hmm. makes it what it is? What makes it unique? What are the challenges of driving it? Can you tell me about that? You know, how do you make it go fast? How do you make it go slow? I don't know. Tell me these things. Um, getting out to a club racing event is I would say massively important as well because it tends to be a a calmer environment, a more welcoming family type environment. And you can do that. You can volunteer and try and learn that can be a bit gradual time wise, but it's a really good thing to do. And on top of the things you would learn from the vehicular standpoint with your daughter, Dustin, and what she might pick up again on the chassis side could be a touring car, GT, Formula, whatever. It's going to be a lot of mechanical things that she would learn. But there's also the super, super important side that she would want to pick up, and that is the driver side. So you have the cold, actually they also get hot, but you have the cold metal and 
composites and rubber and whatever in front of you with the vehicle, of course you need to learn all that stuff as an engineer. Well, that's half the equation, 50%. The other 50 is the crazy person strapped inside that vehicle. And you might have a data system, and she might be able to parse all kinds of great wisdom setup-wise from that. But ultimately, it doesn't matter what the computer says. The person turning the steering wheels and stepping on the pedals and pulling on shifters and stuff, you need to start to understand a driver, how they do what they do. Some are better than others, so it's not like one driver is going to give you all the insights. But they ultimately have to live with and make the most out of what a race engineer gives them. So getting to listen to a driver, hey, what, how was that session? Tell me about it. What, did, what was it like? You know, what did the car do? Uh, what did it not do? What do you need it to do? How would you go about addressing that? Just You're having to interact with a human that makes use of the engineering that you're applying to the vehicle. And so that's a huge area to get stuck in on. And also the the final bit to this, which really de- would depend on her interest and her or your finances, the ability for her, provided she wants to do this, to get into a car. And it might just be something, you know, a solo event in a parking lot to uh, getting onto the racetrack itself in some sort of vehicle. The ability to drive and grasp these things that you're working with, Graham, in theory. Okay, so I'm going to stiffen the front anti-roll bar in this front-wheel drive touring car. What is that going to do? Well, again, most likely you'd want to stiffen the rear, but nonetheless, do it. (laughs) And then go drive it. And then come back in and say, aha, understeer is thy name i now understand what this thing is um there's a problem with the steering rack graham it doesn't uh, there aren't enough rotations in it to get this sucker to change direction um it's all these things in general dustin it's learning the computer the data that side it's grasping the vehicle and how it works just in its basic sense forget the racing just what is a car how does it all the things inside of it, what do they do? How do they interact? Then there's the grasping, the engineering, the race engineering side, uh, the driver getting feedback and learning driver interaction that their conversation style terms they use to tell you what they want, don't want. And then really critically, you'll find that many, many of the best race engineers in the world have some sort of racing experience. So they can align the, Oh yeah, I do know what that feels like. Oh, my driver is saying it's doing this thing. And she wants it to do that thing. And I remember that when I drove a car once and it did that same thing, I made a change and it did the thing my driver wants. And aha, firsthand experience being applied. So somewhere in those, what I think might be five points, I would lay out a plan like that. And again, I hope she's not three years old because, man, uh, she's got a lot of work to do if that's the case. Ah, Great stuff. I think we're done, aren't we? We are. And our tradition, which is just becoming more and more normal, I say hello and open the door. Graham Goodwin, you say farewell, set the table, send us home and say farewell. 
Well, we will be back next week. This was the Week in Sports Cars. And again, we're going to thank our friends at Cooper Tyres, our friends, of course, at the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com and Bell Helmets USA. I'm going to say thank you very much indeed to you, Marshall Pruitt. It's a very busy time indeed on the family front, as always. Uh, but most of all, once again, I'm going to thank you, the listeners, and in particular, the listeners that continue to send in some really terrific questions in very large numbers thanks again by the way to ryan kish for curating those again this week if we didn't get to them and i know there's been quite a few we didn't this week please send them back in for next week there's some terrific ones we didn't get to um for now though stay safe again we are getting back to racing hold your breath keep calm stay safe I've been Graham Goodwin. He's been Marshall Pruitt. This has been the Week in Sports Cars on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. We will speak to you again next week. <laughs>